Okay, good evening everyone. Welcome back again for another communal Dhamma session where we gather together not only to practice together but to discuss the Dhamma. Not discuss so much as listen to me discuss and ask me questions. It's a little bit one way. This isn't a the medium doesn't allow for too much community, but that's kind of on purpose. The idea here is to streamline the the dissemination of the Dhamma, to allow for people who have questions, important questions about their practice, to get answers from someone who has been asked a lot of questions. So, you got me. I'm here to answer your questions. The way this works, we don't have video. That's on purpose. Kind of shying away from displaying myself, because this isn't about me. If you came here hoping to find me, well, I've got news for you. You've come here to find yourself. Not your self-self, but yourself. Who are you? You're not here to learn about who I am. If that's what you came to learn, you better just turn right back. Well, no, you better just adjust your expectations because you're here for yourself. You maybe didn't know it. You thought you were coming to learn from, from me, but you're actually coming to learn from yourself. I'm here to help you learn from yourself. That's it. we're not interested in what I have to say we're interested in how you react to what I say what I do I'm going to give you some instigation give you some what do you call it uh, ignite some spark and hopefully it'll help you to react in ways that are wholesome and productive and beneficial help you to develop and Direct your mind towards goodness, towards peace, happiness, freedom from suffering. So the way it works, no video. Close your eyes. You see, you're not even supposed to have your eyes open. Keep your eyes closed. This first part, we can chat a little bit. So you don't have to close your eyes yet. Say what you want in chat. Say hello. I'll say hello. Hello, everyone. Bless Buddha, Buddha, bless. Those are two different things, you know. But I guess we can wish for the wish for the Buddha to be blessed. I don't know. We can wish for the Buddha to bless us. You might ask yourself. You might ask me. You might doubt about this and question and say, how can the Buddha bless us? The Buddha has passed away a long time ago. It would be wrong of you to think that the Buddha was around to hear your your prayers, your beseeching for blessings, your request. Please, Buddha, bless me. It would be wrong to think that he could somehow respond and say, Ah, here, receive my blessing. That would be wrong. Misguided. Doesn't mean that the Buddha can't bless us. It doesn't mean that the Buddha isn't around. In fact, the Buddha is around. The Buddha has three bodies. He has Rupakaya, Namakaya, and Dhammakaya. These are the three bodies of the Buddha. The Namakaya is the mind of the Buddha. So the Buddha was for countless lifetimes as a bodhisattva and then finally became enlightened and at the moment of enlightenment there arose the Namakaya. The body of the Buddha that was actually not the body but the mind. Kaya means body but it, it also means just a a collection or a, an organization, 
an entity, the entity of the Buddha, which was his mind. His mind that was so pure and perfect that he was able to really just know anything. Any question he put or someone put to him, he had an answer for it. He was perfect, they say. If you if you read the texts, it seems suspiciously like perfection in many cases. Not that any of us would be able to verify because we're not perfect, but we can we can look and we can say, oh, that that seems pretty perfect or pretty exceptional anyway. That was the Namakaya. Now, when the Buddha passed away, what we call Parinibbana, after 45 years of teaching, from 35 years as a prince, becoming enlightened 45 years later, passing away, the body dissol dis body dissolving or the dissolution of the body. Then the Namakaya of the Buddha, you can't really say it was no more, but certainly unreachable. And in no form that any of us would recognize or be able to tap into you can't do some kind of seance and reach the Buddha and, and have the Buddha become possessed by the Buddha or have the Buddha talk to you from beyond the grave. The Namakaya of the Buddha is unreachable. So there's no there's no interacting there. There is still the Rupakaya, because they say that there are pieces of the Buddha's bone in India some in Sri Lanka, some they say in Thailand. I don't know whether any of them are real. It doesn't really matter. It's a great thing to have the bones of the Buddha because what a what a physical object of reverence, right? You don't just have to have a Buddha image. Here, this is a piece of his bone. It's a bit morbid maybe, but it's also a bit wonderful to have something to remember the Buddha. This is called the Rupakaya. You can't see him sitting in meditation anymore, but maybe, maybe just maybe you can see a piece of his skull or a piece of his tooth or something like that. It's not inconceivable. 2,500 years, it's not that long a time for a bone to hang around. They say the bones are either magical themselves or are being kept by magical means by the angels. That would also make some sense if you believe in angels. Certainly they're better at keeping track of things than we are. We'd lose anything. 2,500 years, there's a story of some people uh, unearthing a stupa, a big pagoda in India, and they found some bones in them and they put them and they dropped them into the river because they were Hindus and that's what Hindus do with bones. And, the Buddha, and it was a Buddhist stupa. It was maybe the bones of Sariputta or something. And the Buddhists, of course, were horrified. It's horrific to think that they got rid of those things. But ah, it's another lesson in impermanence, right? That's not a big deal. Rupakaya. But how do we? What's really left of the Buddha is the Dhammakaya. The Buddha can bless us and blesses us every day with his teachings. The Dhamma. Now there's a, there's a, there's a modern Buddhist movement called the Dhammakaya, and that's not what I'm talking about. That's nothing to do with this. The Dhammakaya from the scriptures literally simply means the body of teachings. We have the Sutta, we have the Vinaya, we have the Abhidhamma. They're all still here. Eighty-four thousand teachings of the Buddha. I think I think we have the majority of those hanging out, hanging around, still here. And they'll be around for some time. It's just up to us to receive the teachings, to practice them. Dhammo hovirakati dhammachari. Who gets the protection of the Buddha, of the Dhamma? One who practices. Dhammachari. One who lives by the Dhamma. One who fares by the Dhamma. 
ธรรมจารีธรรมจารีสุขังสีติ One who dwells, who fares by the Dhamma, lives in happiness, is protected by the Dhamma. So, okay, a tangent there. The point was to say, say what you want. Just let's just talk. Greetings, greetings to everyone. Hello. Wow, we have people from Australia, Stockholm. But there will come a time where I say stop. I say, okay, fun's over. Then you have to close your eyes. You have to close your eyes and stop chatting because I'm going to instruct Shraddha. The person with me today is Shraddha. She's back. I don't know for how long, but she's here tonight. And she will be asking the questions. So I'll tell. And she's also our. Our moderator. I was thinking that we should get another moderator. It's too much work for one person, really. I'm sure we have volunteers who could help to moderate. And then it'll be anything that's not a question in chat. We're going to delete it. A anything posted after that point. It's coming up soon. I'm going to say it in a moment here, but I just want to warn you because at that point it becomes too chaotic, and we we. We're not allowing answers to questions. So if someone asks a question, please don't try to answer it. And that's the point where everyone should have their eyes closed anyway. Unless you're asking a question, there should be no chatting, no responding. Please don't even say, oh, that was a good question, or that was a good answer, or boy, that answer was terrible, or something like that. None of that, please. We're just going to delete it all. No praise or blame. That's all just worldly stuff. Close your eyes. Let's start now. Close your eyes. Close Facebook. Close YouTube. Oh no! Don't close YouTube. This is YouTube, right? Keep YouTube open, but close any other YouTube videos you might be watching. And we're gonna start. So we're gonna start right now. No more. No more chat. If you have a question. Open your eyes, type the question, and then just close your eyes. You don't need to wait for a response. It'll come or it won't come. That's part of the uncertainty of life. You don't know what's going to happen. But we're going to practice. If you're here and you haven't been indoctrinated, no, if you haven't been you don't know, if you haven't read the booklet on how to meditate, you should probably do that first. Questions we're going to answer first are questions that really need an answer. Our question we ask, I've instructed Shraddha and Chris to ask, is, is an answer to this question really important for the person's progress and development towards peace, happiness, and freedom from suffering? If it's not, it doesn't fit the qualification. And we might answer it, but probably as a secondary response in the second part of the program. First and foremost, foremost, we're going to answer questions related to the practice that really need an answer. So, I'm ready to begin. Questions only from now on, please. And any questions people have already answered, asked, of course, they're included. You don't have to ask them again. You're ready to go. When doing walking meditation, are we supposed to wait until the front of the foot touches the ground to note touching, after noting lowering of the front of the foot? Yes, touching is as you touch. Noting will always be the moment after, at least. Noting isn't some magical thing that you, like it's not where you, it's not like a, a gun where you're shooting something to try and hit a target. It's not like that. The noting is a reminder, sati. Sati is about reminding. And so we're trying to evoke this sense of remembering things. Oh yeah, that's just that. 
part of it is just the the, the process of evoking that mo mental note. In order to put a name on something, you have to know what it is, right? So just the process, before you even made the note, you've already evoked some really useful mind states, objective states of clarity and awareness. You, you wouldn't be able to note it otherwise. And then the noting itself is the reaffirmation, saying to yourself, no, no, that's not bad, that's not me good, that's not me, that's not mine. It is what it is. So yes, no touching as soon as you're aware that you're touching. It's just a reminder, that's all it is. It's a mantra, really. And that's what a mantra does, is it focuses your attention on the experience, purifies your, your awareness. Any kind of mantra purifies in the sense of, of being focused. It's purified not in a judgmental sense, like, oh, you were impure before, but in the sense of filtering. It filters out all the noise. When you purify water, when you purify uh, metal, you, know, you take out all the extra extraneous stuff, all the baggage. Can you meditate if there's noise around? Yes, it sounds like this is someone who might not have read the booklet. Maybe, maybe not. Um, but certainly if it's not clear, you absolutely can, especially because noise is an object of meditation. So our main object is going to be the, the body. When you walk, it'll be the foot. When you sit, it'll be the stomach. But apart from that, anything else that your mind gets distracted by becomes your object of meditation. That's the beauty of mindfulness. It doesn't require you to seclude yourself from reality because the object is reality. So when you're experiencing sound, the sound becomes your object and you just say hearing, hearing. But if you haven't read the booklet, I recommend doing that. My mom wants to meditate and study with me, but wants to keep her Christian faith. Is there an, any value to the practice when one rejects things like rebirth? Is there a way to attainment without it? There's probably going to be a limit. I don't think you can expect someone to, someone who doesn't believe in, it's not so much about rebirth. Oh, no, if you reject rebirth, that's a bit of a problem. It's, um, it's wrong view. But, but views are such a, a, a fluid thing, you know. The, what really gets in the way and really prevents any kind of goodness is the dogmatic wrong views like it really depends how entrenched the views are and there are many people in, even in the time of the Buddha whose views changed right they had wrong view there were many Brahmins in the time of the Buddha but once they met the Buddha they were able to compare the the, the traditions you know they could compare the Buddha with their own teachers and they, there's just no comparison. Views are fluid, so it's not so much that you know. It's not. It wouldn't be a categorical thing like like Christians can't meditate. It's a question of that individual person. Are they going to be able? To, are they going to be open-minded enough to give up wrong views if their views are found to be wrong? And it's not about oh, you're Christian, so all your views are wrong. That's certainly not true. It's that your views go against reality. When you see that they go against reality, are you going to be able to give them up? So we might layer this and say that, well, there are certain views that are going to get in the way of you even uh, opening the door to understand reality. 
If someone says, and this is a Christian thing common among some Christians, meditation is evil, meditation is the product of the devil, meditation is, goes against God, etc., etc., clearly that's going to prevent them from any kind of attainment. But if someone says, I believe that when we die we go to a place place determined by outside influences like God. God says I go to heaven, I go to heaven. If, or, or worse yet, if I believe in Jesus Christ as my Savior, I go to heaven. If not, I go to some place that's not heaven. Then... Um, that's the kind of thing that you can verify. They, they well, not verify, but sorry, not exactly verify until you die. But you can get a sense of being in line with reality. I mean, you can actually verify it. It may not seem like this, and this is why rebirth is such a problem for people because they're they're not clear. You can verify rebirth, not not by dying. You can verify it by understanding reality. There's no question that rebirth is, and it's not rebirth, it's just the lack of death's ability to end the mind, end the stream of consciousness. You can verify, yeah, you can, you can align yourself with that truth by seeing the power of the mind. I mean, we don't know what death is, we, most of us don't remember it. But, there's no you know there's no good reason to believe things like you know, god is going to influence us going to heaven i mean if you were to say at death there's nothing that would be a little bit i mean it's a little easier for scientists and people to believe but for anyone with a half an open mind it's it's quite difficult to believe um i mean especially once you've done some mindfulness practice to believe that when you die, poof, all of the good and bad deeds you've done are, are worthless, are, are overruled by an external force. So what I'm just simply trying to say is that those kinds of views can be overcome with proper practice and objectivity. The open mind, you know, are people willing to question their beliefs that's a problem for Christians I think I think one big thing is and this is a view that gets in the way is that um, faith is more important than proof or evidence or observation that could get in the way because it will come into conflict you'll start to see things that threaten your faith and you'll choose faith over what you're seeing for yourself. And, and that's possible for many reasons, simply because we can be tricked. Maybe what I'm seeing is all just a trick. Satan, you know? There are ways around that. Really an important part of the practice is a teacher. Having someone who who provides that direction who helps you who is able to give you the confidence in your own observations and help you to uh, see things in such a way as to provide that basis for confidence because it's objective because there is no, no capacity for you to be tricked the things you can learn for yourself and, and to see the difference between the things you can be learned for yourself because you can learn for yourself because here's the thing if if what you experience could just be a trick of the devil who's to say that all these things you've learned from Christianity aren't just a trick of the devil for example or any other any other rebuttal you could give to the things you experience for yourself could doubly be given to anything you've just read in a book or heard from your pastor or so on and so on. And that's why that's why we have to draw a line, or we do draw a line in Buddhism between the things you can know for yourself and the things you can't. 
The things you can know for yourself are very, very few. But they're very important and they're sufficient. If you know those things and know the qualities of those things, the characteristics of those things for yourself, you don't need to know anything else. Everything else just falls into line. Those few things are things like seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, feeling, thinking. They are your experiences and your reactions to experiences. You get angry at something. Nobody's tricking you into thinking you're angry. <laughs> you're angry. You want something. It's not a trick. Yes, you can be tricked into thinking something's worth uh, worth liking, worth wanting. You can be tricked into thinking something is something else, but when you want it, the wanting is real. When you see it, the seeing is real. Short answer, after giving a long answer, short answer, yeah, I think there's value. I wouldn't put too much worry there. Ultimately, it's up to your mother to find her own path. As a good child, a good daughter or son, child, offspring, providing her with the opportunity and support to, to find the right way, find the way to see the truth for herself is an incredible thing. You've done an incredible thing if you have made her want to meditate and study with you. In fact, I would focus more on the meditation than the study. As long as you're focused on, on trying for the both of you, to, to, to gain right practice Study in Buddhism is highly overrated You know I was just thinking that all these videos And all the texts and so on It's so easy to miss the point That when the Buddha gave his teachings He didn't He didn't do it so that we'd have texts to refer to And to read Like people read the whole of the Majjhima Nikaya Or the Diga Nikaya Or the whole of the Tipitaka I know people who have read the whole Tipitaka and still have wrong views. His intention was that those teachings would support the people who heard them, would, would provide them with right view and right intention, right inclination. So focus on that. The truth has to come from within. Where willpower isn't enough, it's surprisingly more effective to wish, may I be able to? Why? How would this incline the mind properly? How to differentiate this from the disappointing hope for magic? I don't get it. Yeah, I don't understand it either. I think I'm getting dense, so you don't understand. Okay, then I'm not alone. All right. So I think there's some misunderstanding here about what we're all about, or not. There's a, a dis dissonance here between our path and maybe the person asking this. We're not interested in willpower. Not so much. I mean, that's a bit bit surprising, probably. It's not quite willpower. It's not the power of the will. It's it's the power of wisdom. May I be able to? So the idea is like may I be able to is not what we're working towards. We're trying to see clearly and when you wish to see that clearly. How do Buddhists incline the mind properly? By, folk, by trying to understand things like willpower, things like wishing, things like hope, disappointment. I think, um, I think the core of your question here is how Buddhists, and should be, how Buddhists incline the mind properly. And the best thing I can say for that is, hey, read our booklet, my booklet, the booklet on, you know, it's not mine, this booklet that passes on the teachings that were given to me and are given to all of us that provide what we think is a way to understand the 
truth of the Buddhist teaching. If you read that booklet and you still have questions, come on back. If you want to do an at-home course, that's another good suggestion. Another suggestion anyway, you can decide whether it's a good one. We have this at-home course where you stay at home, do your practice, and we meet once a week. Shraddha has helpfully posted the links. They're also in the description, hopefully. I am massively interested into learning more about Buddhism. I've started reading books about Theravada Buddhism. How do you settle on a school of Buddhism? Sorry if that is too personal. Have we run out of meditation questions? Yeah, all the questions are, well, this, the, this, this one, but maybe a bit meditation related, the rest are not. What are some other meditation techniques for cultivating goodness? There's a lot of meditation techniques that are good for cultivating goodness. A very well-known one is metta, which means like friendliness, cultivating a state of mind that is friendly, compassion, uh, sympathetic joy, equanimity. The, the foulness of the body, using that as an object. Death is a good one. But the greatest goodness is mindfulness. Greatest, I, I don't know if that's fair to say, but something like, you can't, you wouldn't be complete. A, a description of goodness wouldn't be complete without mindfulness. It's very core. Without it, any kind of development of goodness is going to be hollow. Like take metta, for example. It's possible to, for, to push and to cultivate and to become very friendly. But without the wisdom and understanding underneath it, it's always going to be artificial. Because it's also easy to fake it. And if you don't go deeply and try and eliminate ill will towards others, it's, it's never going to be perfect. Same with, with so many of these, like um, the foulness of the body. Some monks practice that because they have problems with lust. And and it's good for repressing temporarily, but it can backfire if that's all you do. Eventually, you just end up wanting to gorge without mindfulness. Do you have suggestions for increasing the amount of mindfulness in a day? I can forget for long stretches of time. The greatest suggestion is go to a meditation center and just stay in your room. Have someone send you food. Um, I mean, the, the, the general answer to that, I think, is just practice. And And... It's deceptive there because I mean that's probably not surprising that I should answer in that way, but what I really what I mean is by that I mean over lifetimes. It might take you lots of lifetimes of practice. So you better start now. But there are of course ways of accelerating that. One is to be born in a time when the Buddha is around, of course. I mean be born in a time such as this. Why? Because, well, you have this special opportunity to accelerate that learning process and, and not deviate from it, of course. So by being born in a time when the Buddhist teachings are around, you have an opportunity to direct yourself towards mindfulness. And then it just goes from there. Find a place and find a teacher, find a, pra a meditation center, do meditation courses, practice intensively, etc., etc. Doing an intensive meditation course is a good good suggestion. 
barring that, of course, do formal meditation every day because that's going to support your mindfulness. But ultimately, don't have the expectation that it's going to be an easy or a simple or a quick fix. A part of the path is learning that you aren't in control. And so forgetting for long stretches of time is good learning. Help you realize that you're not in control. This isn't something that you can just turn on and say, okay, I've decided that I'm going to be mindful all day. It's not how it works. You're fighting a war with yourself, really. And maybe some days you win, you win the battle and some days you lose. And maybe over time you start to win. The great thing about it is you can never be defeated. You never lose the war. There's always an opportunity to start again. So don't look to the past. Don't worry about the future. You just do what you can now. <coughs> surround yourself with good people. It's something maybe else. Surround yourself. It's another general one. Is just surround yourself with people who are also mindful. It's a good reminder for you. Meditating is knowing and experience. I guess it depends what you mean by knowing. I mean, literally it is, but... Like, take for example, if you say, I know that Paris is the capital of France. That knowing isn't really the experience. The experience would be a thought. Paris is the capital of France, but you might still note knowing if you, if it arises. Oh yeah, I know that Paris is the capital of France. It's just if I were to nitpick, I might say it's not really knowing. It's just thinking, and then there's the confidence in it. But yeah, generally speaking, knowing is an experience. It's not a. It's not an accurate word for ever for. It's just, it's the best English word, I think. Like, aware might work, but aware is kind of clumsy because we don't use it that much. But we use knowing as a note for a lot of things. And it might seem a bit weird, but it works. Like when you when you are aware of something happening, you would just say knowing, knowing. Not because you know for certain something about that experience, but because that's a knowing. You're, you know the experience. You you are aware of the experience. It's with the word vinyana. It's also the way they say it in Pali. Vinyana really does mean knowing. It's knowledge and it's like a, a special knowledge, like a really direct knowledge. That's maybe what the meaning there is, the direct knowledge, like not because someone else told you, but because you know directly. The definition of, of consciousness is uh, direct knowledge. Could you please clarify whether the present moment is the goal or means to the core. So the present moment, there's a sense in what you could say it is the means to the goal. I suppose there's a sense in which you could say it's the goal. But the best way to understand the present moment is the truth or the reality. And why so much emphasis is placed on the present moment is because any focus we put outside of it is a focus outside of reality. When you're focused on the past and you think, oh, this happened in the past, you're not really true. You're not really in, in reality. Because the truth is, that's happening right now. It's a thought, a memory, right? Memories happen in the present moment. So it's not even a goal, it's just what's real. 
uh, and and our so that we'd say it this way: the present moment is reality. Focusing on the present moment is the means to the goal. And the goal is to be in perfect touch with the present moment, to see the present moment perfectly clear. Because if you see one moment perfect with perfect clarity, that's the moment that leads to enlightenment. It just takes one moment. And all we're doing really, in a technical sense, is building up to that one moment. Practically, it seems a lot more. We're doing a lot of work cleaning the mind and so on, but all of that is technically only for that one moment when we finally get it and we have this kind of like an epiphany almost, but it's more like a, a cessation, a, a release where the fire is quenched, suffering ceases. I perceive more appropriate than rising and falling, a noting of the type inflating, deflating like a balloon. Is that appropriate? Why do we say rising if the belly goes forward? It's a very good question. It's a very important question. We say rising and falling because unfortunately those are the words in English that are used for that inflating and deflating motion of the body. It, you're probably not a native English speaker who asks this question and a lot of people who come here and come to our practice are also not native English speakers and so they have similar problems misunderstandings even because they think, oh, rising is going up it's actually not this is a case of the use of a word in a specific way rising in English actually does mean that expansion of the stomach the rising and falling of the abdomen is probably because we see it in babies when they're lying down and then it does actually rise and fall. But it relates to, I think, the rising and falling of, of bread, of dough, like yeast. So we, it's the use of the word rising in that sense, like the yeast, the dough rises, not not just because it goes up, but because it inflates. Um, now certainly... In in Thai, they 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 use more appropriate language, which relates to inflating and deflating, and in many other, many other languages, like even in French, they say gonfler, gonfler, dégonfler. Uh, I think other other people have used different words, but you've you've hit the nail on the head. You've got it right. Inflating, deflating is is the sort of thing you should say. And if in English you want to use those words, that's fine especially if you're not a native English speaker, rising, falling seems kind of strange. Ultimately, the words aren't that important, but it is important that you realize by rising, we don't mean going up. We mean something else. We mean inflating. Now, if, if you have another native language, you certainly should consider using that language. Don't try and use different languages or words because you think that's going to make it easier. It might temporarily, but in the long term, that's just creating this habit of trying to fix things, trying to make things easier, trying to tweak and make things better, and that's not wholesome. It's not helpful. Be content with words that are clear and simple and don't distract you from the experience, but rather bring you closer to the experience. starting to make a lot of progress in my practice. I'm also starting to be afraid of losing self. It may sound childish, but it's a scary thought to not be able to go back and what it will feel like. My question to that is any advice for that fear? 
So let's let's be clear about what meditation changes. It's a common concern. It's a common sort of concern. But it's kind of funny to to hear because meditation doesn't take you somewhere you're you don't want to go. I mean it can. Certain types of meditation can. Not mindfulness though. Mindfulness can't do that to you. Because mindfulness is just about helping you see more clearly. And that might not that might in some for some people theoretically seem like a scary thing as well, but in reality it's never a scary thing to see more clearly. It's never harmful. It's never a problem. So the only things that you're going to get rid of is th are things that you clearly see without any intellectual or uh, faith-based belief that you clearly see are, are harmful for you, that you see for yourself. And, and not only see, but, but verify repeatedly, really. It takes a lot of repeated observation to get it through our dull and dusty lenses that that things are good or bad for us so you're going to have to see repeatedly until you have no doubt until it becomes perfectly clear that certain ways of behaving certain things of certain clingings are harmful to you and then you'll let go of those you'll never miss them it would be impossible to miss them because if you still miss them, it means you still don't see them clearly. You still don't see clearly that they're causing you suffering. That's the point. It's a, it's a an intrinsic or it's a it's a deep seated it's it's a foundational understanding that these things are harmful and unbeneficial. These things are useless. Fear, for example. Fear is harmful and it's something that you should let go of. It's also the case where uh, just because we're afraid of something doesn't mean it's worth being, it's right that we're afraid. It doesn't mean the thing that we're afraid of is fearsome. Uh, just because we want something doesn't mean that thing is worth wanting. And mindfulness will help us see that. Fear will ultimate, ultimately cloud your judgment, make it harder for you to see clearly. So if you want to solve your problem, Practically speaking, the best thing you can do is focus on the fear and just say afraid, afraid. Just because something's a scary thought doesn't mean it's bad or that there's any good in clinging to the fear. There isn't actually. There's no good that comes from clinging to fear and your real suffering is not the fact that you might lose something you cherish but that you're afraid to lose that thing. That fear is what's causing you suffering and when you see that, you'll be able to let go. I mean, it won't be a question of letting go. It'll just be not being afraid anymore. How to see clearly suffering in walking meditation? I fail to understand Dukkha in the subject of con concentration while walking. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about failing to understand Dukkha in the object of concentrating while walking? It's a kind of a smarmy answer, but a question, but you can't help but see suffering in so many ways. And why I ask that question is because one sort of suffering is not getting what you want. You want to understand suffering by walking, and you're not getting that. That's suffering. That's suffering. So, congratulations. Uh, another way of that we understand suffering is just by seeing things arise and cease. Suffering is, many people criticize the use of the translation. I don't mind it so much, but it can be a bit misleading. Suffering really just means that it's not satisfying. And the ultimate definition of not being satisfying or dukkha 
is uh, subject to a rise and fall, subject to cessation. How could it satisfy you if it ceases? How could it be worth clinging to? How could it be something worth liking? There's nothing to it. It's gone in a moment. A big problem, I think, is we intellectualize these things and then we want to quote-unquote see them. Because first you say how to clearly see, and then you say failing to understand, and most likely you've got some intellectual idea that you're going to suddenly say, oh, look, I see suffering, and it's not like that. It's not like that at all. The three characteristics are what lets go of experience. That's all they are. Because you see, we, we, we think of things as the opposite, as stable, satisfying, as me and mine, controllable. And as you see more clearly, you're going to realize they're not. It's not intellectual. You're not going to say, oh, hey, I, I get it now. You're just going to change your mind about things. And when people ask you, they'll say, no, no, those things are not stable, they're not satisfying, they're not controllable, they're not me, they're not mine. And you're going to give up those views and perceptions and reasons for clinging to things. And this is an example. It's not working, I can't see what I want to see. Ah, this is impermanent suffering and non-self, unpredictable. You can't sit down and say, I'm waiting, when am I going to understand this you're not in control that's where dukkha comes in if you see that if you see that enough enlightenment will follow Where should we locate emotions when we note them? Pain, I can locate it. Thoughts kind of in the forehead, but emotions give multiple bodily informations. So where should I focus? You should separate the body and the mind. Emotions don't happen in the body, they happen in the mind. They don't. They give multiple body informations, that's correct, but they are not the bodily informations that they give. They result in them. Like anxiety, for example. Anxiety is not the physical sensations that come from anxiety. It's not located anywhere. The mind is not located anywhere. The mind does not take up space. That's an important thing to understand. Space is a derived quality of matter. So your thoughts don't even occur in the forehead, though there will be physical... You know, the brain is in the forehead, obviously, so there will be many much brain activity that is associated with thought visions and uh, sort of impressions sense, they're all sense impressions but the thoughts don't happen anywhere neither do the emotions but that, that doesn't really matter because you can focus on the physical impressions, the physical results you can also focus on the emotions but don't confuse them if you're going to say anxiety or anxious, anxious don't try and locate it somewhere and don't confuse it with the physical responses to anxiety. If you're angry, don't try and locate the anger in the pain that comes from it. The pain and the anger are two different things. The the pleasure in, in desire that will arise in the brain, will arise in the systems of the body, the sexual organs and that sort of thing, it's separate. After years of practice, I still can't see for myself the religious parts of Buddhism as possible. While the teachings of mindfulness, no clinging, and love have rung true, am I doing something wrong? You have to be a little more specific because I don't know which parts of Buddhism you're talking to. It might seem clear. I have um, 
a bit of a radical understanding of the word religion and that's not that's actually neither here nor there but i want to i want to talk about it but but first i'll just say that religion is such a porous and diverse sort of nebulous concept that you could be referring to anything and i don't really know what you're referring to when you say religious parts if i ask you what do you mean by religious you might be hard pressed to explain to me what you mean by religious because most of us haven't thought about how nebulous the word is and we take it for granted that we do know what it is when when in fact we've never actually thought about what the word means religion has just come to mean a whole host of things and we have all some fairly vague and often overly specific definitions like relates to god or relates to relates to the the infinite or something um but when you say when i say the word religious i mean something that we take seriously and that could be anything it's something that we really take seriously something that is intrinsic to our sense of of value and worth and importance in the world not just important in the sense like if i do this i'll get don't do this i'll get fired or if i do this i'll get a raise right but important in terms of this is right for me to do this is this is right for me to believe this is important in an ultimate sense and so mindfulness is a very religious thing. It might seem weird that, you know, I've, I've given a definition to religion that, not the only one, but it's a, I wrote a paper on this a while back, and it's something that's important to me because it really clarifies this nebulous concept of religion if we understand it as that which people take seriously, like really seriously. It differentiates it from science because scientists can prove things and not take them seriously like you can prove that smoking causes cancer and still smoke but if you believe that smoking is bad like really bad not just for your health but like just not a good thing someone should do then then you probably won't smoke right? and and more deeply religious than smoke not smoking would be the idea that physical health is really an important part of life which I'm not really that I don't that's not a religious thing for me but mindfulness is people should be mindful really it's just an, a very important thing so that's religious someone who is mindful is keen on mindfulness should be religiously mindful the problem i think is that we often associate with dogma because often people take things so seriously without any kind of reason for taking them seriously like um I, I take seriously my belief in Jesus because otherwise I'm going to hell for it. No, but be, because, you know, because I was told to or because I, I was told to believe or because I believe that believing is useful or so on. And that can turn people off because I don't really get it. Um, but we believe things, we're religious about things because uh, because they're important. No, because we see and and understand the benefit to them same with not clinging not clinging is a very religious thing you know, it it is a religious point of contention some people would say you should cling to certain things clinging is a cause for happiness they would say we're very religious about our belief in not clinging love love uh, love is too nebulous too too fraught with problems that word but friendliness, yes, friendliness, absolutely. See, you've snuck in a definition. Okay, so I'm I'm gonna have to be more. I can't I can't avoid this one now because you've given me some examples. Thirty-one planes of existence, rebirth, the Buddha seeing the future. Mm. So things that are not not when you say religious, you mean uh, unverifiable based on faith based on faith so these things aren't based on faith you can have faith in them or not but people have said and continue to say that they have empirical evidence of these things people say they see angels i've had people tell me they see an angel oh i don't want to say that but anyway 
people tell me about angels and and um, people talk about visiting other planes of existence. And some of them are maybe just crazy, but people say that. Um, people talk about seeing the future. I had an experience where I, if I'm not just remembering incorrectly, I think I saw the future and people have told me that sort of thing where they've seen the future. Pretty weird, but doesn't mean it's not true. Rebirth, people remember their past lives. If you don't, here's your answer, is that you're not doing something wrong and you don't have to believe them because believing those things is not really a part of, of Buddhism. If you have the view that those things are wrong, that we aren't reborn, that, that I mean by, by that I mean the mind doesn't continue at death, it's not possible for the mind to continue at death, that could get in the way, certainly. If you believe that there's no such thing as angels, that can get in the way, not as badly. I think a big one is is really having a strong, firm belief that when we die there's nothing. That really gets in your way. For some very obvious reasons. You won't have any sense of the urgency of becoming a better person because what's the point? Okay, there's a point, but it's not a very strong one. Yeah, yeah, be a good person because, well, you want other people to be good to you. Okay, still not very strong. But be a good person because, yeah, there are consequences. You'll become you'll, you'll become a bad person if you don't. That's, that's, that's pretty compelling. But that that's that, that the com the compulsion is is destroyed is is heavily heavily limited if you believe that it doesn't mean anything when you die and we're all just die and that's it. But if you believe you got to come back and be a terrible person in the next life as well, then that's a good enough reason not to be a terrible person. Um, there's criticism. The criticism of that that we often would get is, oh yeah, that's. I mean fear-mongering or all well and good but doesn't provide any evidence so I don't think I want to get into the sort of evidence that one might have I've talked about it elsewhere if you want to look up some of my videos on rebirth and and death I think I've talked about it enough before but I'm willing to talk about it later. The time is up now, so I'm not going to go into detail now. But just to reassure you, don't worry too much about those things. Um, but maybe also don't take too seriously your years of practice. Because it's not so much the years as it is the the the, the, the quality, right? You might find that practicing in a different way would clear up some of those things, those doubts and concerns, and help you understand the truth of the mind, that it doesn't really, doesn't usually end when we die, unfortunately. I mean, it's really unfortunately, because then you can just end and be done with it. But nope, you got to come back, mostly. And we're done. That was uh, so. Oh, are there one, any really important questions? There's one meditation-related question. Maybe quick. Really important. Okay, go for it. When I observe the rising and falling of the abdomen, I sometimes feel a tightness or contraction in the abdomen. During these those times, should I shift shift to same tightness type? Yes, yes. Shift to saying tightness, tightness. That's common, actually, especially in the beginning. Don't let that discourage you or prevent you from meditating. Just take that as your object. You can also note if you dislike it or frustrated or so on. The, I don't know if that's answered specifically, but there's also a frequently asked questions uh, document on our website with the how to meditate booklet that answers some questions like that I don't know if it answers that one specifically but it probably should okay open again and say what you will talk again chat is open again say everybody say sad who
If you think it was good, if you don't think it was good, then don't say sadhu. Just go away. And and try and mindfully be mindful about your disappointment. And I apologize if if it was disappointing. But if you think it was good, we all say sadhu. Because appreciating good things is good. So sadhu for all the good questions. And sadhu for everyone for coming and meditating. I was gone for two sessions. Not for any particular reason. There were just things that came up on those days. Technical issues as well. But um, don't despair. If, if I'm not here one day, I'll, I may have died. So that's also a possibility. But if I didn't die, I'll be back later. But most importantly, prepare yourself so that you're not taken off guard when you die. If you had questions that weren't answered, I apologize. We're not here to answer all questions. If we just didn't get to your question, maybe ask it next time and maybe it'll get answered. We also have another forum for asking questions. It's called ask.sirimongolo.org. It's fairly new, but I definitely encourage everyone to go there if they have questions. It's text-based, but people also post videos in response, like, hey, have you seen this video? It maybe answers your question. But it's only in our tradition. Please don't post answers from other traditions. But yeah, there's helpful people there who are very kind and able to answer your questions. Thank you all for coming. Have a good night. Sadhu.